We're going to begin this evening in Psalm 119 at verse 81. We're going to deal with two sections this evening, beginning with the section corresponding to the Hebrew letter Kaf. It's the 11th of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And as I told you in this series, which we're calling the Golden Alphabet, Psalm 119 is arranged after the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet, where each eight-verse section corresponds with a succeeding letter from the Hebrew alphabet. And so we've made our way through the first ten letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Tonight, in this section, every letter, as you can tell from the Hebrew text that's up on the screen, every uh, line begins with this letter, kaf, in this section, beginning now at verse 81. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? The psalmist in the beginning of this section of Kaf gives us a note of desperation in his words. Did you pick up on that in verse 81? My soul faints for your salvation. His soul was aching for God, so much so that it fainted in waiting for the salvation that he needed. Yet he's not in despair because his hope is in the word of God. The idea of faints there in verse 81 has the idea of coming to an end. It's the same verb in a slightly different form that's used in verse 87 of this very same section, where it says, they almost made an end of me. Well, fainting is the loss of strength, the collapse. And here the psalmist felt that his soul was so weak, so empty of strength, that he was unable to stand. He's desperate, but he's not despairing because his hope is in the word of God. Now those words, desperate but not despairing, I trust that that's well known to many believers in this room. You, you, you know what that situation's like. You're desperate. Sometimes it seems like there's no hope or humanly speaking, all hope has vanished. You're desperate yet not despairing because your hope is in the Lord. And so he cries out, my soul faints for your salvation. Notice that's what kind of salvation he wanted. He didn't want his own salvation. He didn't want somebody else's salvation. It had to be God's salvation that would visit him from heaven. And then he says with great confidence in the second part of verse 81, but I hope in your word. This is a great contrast to the sense of weakness and failing that was in the first line. But the psalmist found hope and strength in the word of God. And friends, this is one of the best uses of God's word. To give us hope, to give us strength, to give us assurance. We should be able to say with great confidence, and I pray that God would just speak those words into your heart this evening, that you would be able to say, I hope in your word. To not be able to have your hope in people. To not be able to have your hope in circumstances, to, to not be able to have your uh, hope in other human resources, but to have your hope in the eternal word of God. Friends, it's a great temptation for us at some critical points in our life to give way to despair. Despair tempts us, and we're tempted to give in to it. But I want you to know that giving in to despair is a terrible act, and you could even say this, that it is a terrible act of pride. You say, well, how could despair ever be proud? 
Now, friends, despair says that there is no hope. And if God says that there is hope, it's nothing but arrogant pride to look in the face of God and say, God, you say there's hope, but I say there is no hope. Well, friends, what is our word next to God's? Can I just give you some assurance tonight? If God says there's hope, there's hope. And it doesn't matter if we feel it or don't feel it. We can have that rest assured in him that there is hope because he says it. And then he continues on here in verse 82 where he says, My eyes fail from searching your word. That's how diligently he searched the word of God. Can I put it in these words? He read and studied God's word so much that his eyes hurt. Now that's devotion unto the word of God. And one reason he loved God's word so much was because he studied it so intently. God's word yields its treasures to us in proportion to our searching it. And that's why he had a motivation to do it as well. In verse 82, he says, he fails from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? That's why the psalmist searched the word so diligently. It was to find comfort in his present distress. And this sense of personal need is sometimes a great gift from God because it's our motivation for diligent study. Listen, you know how it is, right? I think many of you in this room have experienced this where you have a deep, pressing, personal need before God, and it compels you to study his word like never before. It gives you a far greater motivation than theological speculation. No, I need it. I need your word for hope. I love this idea where it says, when will you comfort me? In his sermon titled, God's Time for Comforting, Charles Spurgeon sought to give a very practical answer to this question, when will you comfort me? And he suggested five or six ways that comfort would come. He said, listen, comfort will come when we put away unbelief. And then he said, comfort will come when we've finished complaining. And comfort will come when we put away the sin that we presently tolerate in our lives. And then he said, comfort will come when we fulfill the duties that we have neglected before God. Well, continuing on now into verse 83, he says, For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Here the psalmist continues with this theme of his great weakness before God, even using this very vivid picture of saying, I am like a wine skin in smoke. He felt so weak that he was like a fragile wine skin that had been turned dry and made black with smoke. His soul and his spiritual life felt dry, crackling, ready to burst. You see, a wine skin in smoke. It was useless. It was shriveled. It had no elasticity in the fibers of the skin to hold the liquid that it would typically hold. And we don't know if the psalmist was saying this about his inward condition, about his outward condition, or probably both. He said his natural moisture of his life, just that the, the freedom, the, the, the wetness that he would enjoy in his life, it's dried and burnt up. He feels withered and deformed. And it's getting worse and worse. Yet notice what he says. I'm this desperate, yet I do not forget your statutes. 
despite his great sense of weakness, he was determined not to forget God's statutes. Weakness would not make him forget God's word. You know, it's a great place to come to in our Christian life when we decide that there's no trouble in this world that will pull us away from the word of God. But rather, we're committed to God and his word. A great old Puritan commentator, John Trapp, put it like this. No trouble must pull us from the love of the truth. You may pull my tongue out of my head, but not the faith out of my heart, said the martyr. Wow. Well, to say, yes, you could pull the tongue out of my head, but you can never pull the faith from my heart. That's the kind of determination that the psalmist has here. But, but you sense the great weakness of his pleading. Did you see it right here in verse 84 where he says, How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The, the, the sense of weakness led the psalmist to despair that God would execute judgment against those who were persecuting. He was like a hunted man. Now, very interestingly, verse 84, look at it carefully. I'll read it again. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Do you notice anything interesting about verse 84? There is no mention of the word of God in verse 84. This is one of the few verses in the entire psalm that does not mention the word of God. And the sense and the context lead us to see that the sense of personal weakness and injustice led the psalmist to such distraction and despair that he lost his focus on God's word even for just a moment. You can just imagine the psalmist very deliberately writing it this way. I want people to know that I was so troubled by them. And you know who them are, right? Everybody has them in their life. Those ones who are against you, those who have hurt you, those who have lied against you, those who have wronged you, them. They have upset me so much that I'm not talking about your word now. I'm not thinking about your word. And that's a great deal to say about the enemies of the psalmist. But at the end of this section, now he's going to talk more and more about God's word. Notice this, verse 85 The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. Now, that's a great way to bring in a mention of God's word into it, isn't it? And then he says, all your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongly. Help me. The traps that were set for the psalmist were, in fact, directly against the law of God. And they were, in fact. Exodus chapter 21, verses 33 and 34 say that a man is responsible for the damage when he digs a pit and an innocent man falls into it. Matter of fact, the idea here is probably that they were hunting the psalmist as they would hunt a wild animal. Because in the ancient world, that's oftentimes how they would try to capture a wild animal, is they would dig a pit and try to lead the animal into the pit. And so he feels, I'm hunted like a wild animal. These men who don't love your word and they don't love your law, they're against me. Yet all your commandments, as he says right there in verse 46, 86, I should say, all your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongly. He found faithfulness and refuge in the commandments of God. And it was such a strong contrast to the persecution that he found from his enemies. So at these times, what could he pray? Don't you love the prayer at the end of verse 86? Help me. 
Isn't that a wonderful prayer? That is a prayer that should be on the lips of every believer. Every believer could and should be praying that. You're not too young to pray that. You're not too old to pray that. You're not too uh, strong to pray that. You're not too weak to pray that. You're not too close to God to pray that. You're not too far from God to pray it. Every one of us, in life and in death, in prosperity and in suffering, every one of us should be able to cry out to God and simply say, Help me, God. And God will help. That's why he continues on in verse 87. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindnesses so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The point here, as often is in the book of Psalms, the point is emphasized by repetition. Nothing would make the psalmist forsake God's word. He would cling to it in good times and in bad times. Friends, I hope you've come to this settled conclusion of your life that you could say right along with the psalmist as he says in verse 87 where he said, They almost made an end of me on the earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. There are many things in this world that might cause a person to forsake the word of God in one way or another. Sinful compromise might make somebody forsake the word of God, right? We talked about that on our very first week here, uh, talking about Psalm 119. We talk about that thing that I, I saw written in a Bible very early in my Christian life. That little saying that said this, and I suppose that probably some of you, you've written it in your Bible. It simply says this, this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. Sinful compromise may make a person forsake the law of God. There's also other things. Intellectual arrogance may make a person forsake the law of God. Well, you know, there's an awful lot of debate about these things. And I saw something on the History Channel that said that maybe the Bible isn't everything that it said it's supposed to be. On and on and on and on. Intellectual arrogance has made some people forsake the law of God. Mocking and persecution have made some people forsake the word of God. Oh, at one time, they were proud to carry their Bible with them and maybe read their Bible at lunchtime until somebody said a mocking word against them, and then now they don't do that anymore. Coldness of heart can make a person forsake the word of God. Worldly distractions can cause it. A love of material things can make a person forsake the word of God. Or busyness, whether that busyness is chosen or simply allowed, that can make a person forsake the word of God. Yet here, notice what the psalmist says in verse 87. The psalmist was almost dead. Am I exaggerating when I read that? They almost made an end of me on earth. You know what that means? He was almost dead. He was almost dead, but he would not forsake the word of God. That's it. Nothing could shake this man. And might I say that there's some gold in that word, almost. It reminds us that even though our foes, even though our spiritual adversaries may press for our complete destruction, God will preserve us. He may allow us to be attacked, yet at the same time, he sets a limit to the success of the attackers. Almost is a word of God's gracious protection. 
We can have some wonderful testimony time here, right? Great almosts in our life, right? I was almost dead. I was almost destroyed. I was almost completely given over to sin. I was almost so cold of heart that I completely turned my back on God on and on and on. But God graciously turned that into an almost, right? Instead of a permanent condition. Then he says something wonderful in verse 88, the verse that closes this section. He says, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The psalmist looked to God for new life, for revival. Yet he knew that it wasn't deserved. Even by him who loved God's word so much, he doesn't come before God and say, well, God, you better revive me because I'm so spiritual and I want revival. No, no, he prayed, revive me according to your loving kindness, according to your generous mercy, and not according to what he had deserved or earned. And listen, if we are revived, if God will revive us, then, then we will have security against whatever enemies we have. You see, the psalmist spoke very plainly about his great love for God and his love for God's word. Yet his trust was in the loving kindness of God, not even in his own love to God and God's word. So why did he want to be revived? This is very important. Did you see it there in verse 88? So that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Here the psalmist understood the purpose of a revived spirit. It wasn't merely to enjoy a season of spiritual excitement. It was for a more faithful and obedient walk with God. Many people look to revival as merely a time of heightened spiritual excitement. That that it has little purpose other than giving people a sense of blessing and thrills. And this mistaken idea of revival actually hinders the work of true revival. But how it honors God when God's people cry out to him and say, Lord, won't you revive us? Lord, won't you send revival so that we can obey you better? Not so that we can be given over to strange spiritual experiences, but so that we can keep the testimony of your mouth. And that's what he says, the testimony of your mouth. Do you see with that phrase in verse 88 that the psalmist understood that the Bible contains the actual words that came from the mouth of God? Now, please understand, he wasn't ignorant that God had used human authors and that those human authors still expressed their personality through the inspired writings. Yet God had so wonderfully directed those human authors that what they wrote could accurately be called words from the mouth of God. And if the Bible gives us words from God's mouth, then we can confidently say that the Bible is infallible. That is, in its original autographed copies, of which we have extremely reliable copies, it is absolutely without error. And by the way, since the mouth communicates words, we must also insist that the words of the Bible are infallible, not merely the ideas. This is a dodge that some people gave. They said, well, listen, the Bible's full of inspired thoughts. Oh, but the words, the words aren't important. No, ladies and gentlemen, the words themselves are very important. 
And the psalmist understood this. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Friends, do you want revival in your life? Do you want God to revive you? Well, let me ask you, what is the motivation in your desire for revival? I don't think there's probably any one single motivation. There may be many. But among your motivations for revival, make this one of them. Lord, I want to be revived so that I can obey you better. So that I can take this word that you've given me and that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. That is evidence of true revival. Heightened obedience among the people of God. Through my years of study and teaching, I've made some great deal of research into the subject of biblical and historical revival. And it is very true that sometimes strange phenomenon happen in the midst of revival. That's very true. But the measure of true revival is never, ever how much strange phenomenon happens. It's how much real obedience is worked into the lives of the people of God as a result of what the Holy Spirit is doing. So we cry out to God, even in despair, even if you fit this section of cough here where the psalmist was so um, embattled that he sometimes described it as being almost dead, even if that's you, you can cry out to God, revive me that I may keep your word. Father, this is our prayer this evening. Lead us now, Lord, with a worshipful heart before you and before your throne. We love you, Lord. And we say, revive us, God. But but revive us so that we may keep your word, the precious words of your mouth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.